Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi guys, thanks for tuning back into Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0, your go-to show for all things ETH 2.0 development and proof of stake. I'm Christine Kim, Research Associate at Coindesk. And I'm Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus. Today, we're going to get an update on Coindesk's in-house validator operations, which launched back in February on the cloud. We're also going to talk about ETH price breaking past $4,000 for the first time ever, and a few other metrics that also reached new all-time highs over the last week. And finally, we'll discuss the Beacon Chain's Altair upgrade coming soon. Joining us for our first segment to talk about Coindesk's ETH2 validator, dubbed Zelda, is Coindesk's Director of Engineering, Spencer Beggs. Hi, Spencer. How are you? Hi, Christine. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good that you're here, Spencer. I'm excited to talk to you about Zelda, but we do have some new listeners probably on the show that isn't quite familiar with Zelda and her setup. Can you remind us of how Coindesk's ETH2 staking operations are set up, Spencer? What's unique about our setup compared to, say, the validator setup of Metal Albert, which is Ben's ETH2 validator? Uh, well, our ETH2 validator is set up in cloud computing. So we're not just running our validator locally, we're running it inside of our multi-tenant environment, which produces some challenges regarding the security infrastructure setup because you know we're just not able to sort of reach to our computer and unplug it or log into it. We have to account for many users being able to access the same environment that our validator is running. Did you do anything specific to secure the setup, Spencer? Hi, it's great to, great to talk to you again. <laughs> Tell us about what you did to secure the environment. Yeah, so the first thing you know we do to set up the environment is we make sure that one, we're running our validator in a sub-environment of our general cloud computing environment. This is called a virtual private cloud. We run all of our infrastructure inside its own virtual private cloud to keep it separate from the rest of the infrastructure that we use here at Coindesk. The second part is within that private cloud, we set up a VPN, a virtual private network, and that allows us to you know, ensure even if you're inside of this virtual private cloud where all of the infrastructure is set up, you have to have special credentials to be able to even access the server, the validator, and the boxes. Uh, and then from there, you know, we have the security set up with the SSH, which is a program that you use to access, and we uh, limit access to that to a special group of users that are able to do it. So we sort of have you know, three bubbles of security before you're able to actually get access to that. And then within that, server, we have, we have a set of permissions. Each process runs as its own system user to make sure that even if you could get in, it would be very hard for you to escalate your permissions and read the secret keys or, or any of the private information. I am very glad, Spencer, that you are the one who is thinking about all of these security considerations. 
so that I can have peace of mind at nighttime and whenever that Zelda's operations are secure. So really thank you for the work that you do on the security front. Digging a little bit deeper to how you said with cloud services, there's the added security consideration. What about when you're running a validator on the cloud? What are some of the cost considerations? What are the costs of running Zelda in terms of capital expenditures and also day-to-day maintenance time? What does it take to keep Zelda running? Would you say it's rather high maintenance or a low maintenance product to run? So we used a, a platform called AWS CDK, which is the cloud development kit, which allows us to sort of abstract the way the infrastructure is set up together. And so there's a lot of upfront cost to setting this up. And many times you end up setting up a server and tearing it down over and over and over again and sort of going in and manually setting it up. Once that process is complete, it's fairly easy to change or upgrade the infrastructure. But there's, there's sort of like a lot of upfront costs just in terms of, you know, you need to bring up the server, have it go through the setup cycle, find the errors, bring it back down. And it's much easier when you're working locally just to, uh, log in, you know, run the commands, find what's happening and debug. You sort of need a process where you submit the information to Amazon and it brings it all up in one go and you want to make sure that that happens cleanly. But once that process is complete, modifying it is is relatively easy, which is one of the real benefits to using something like Cloud Development Kit. So, so what is some of that upfront cost? How much in dollar terms would you say we've spent in capital expenditures to keep Zelda running? I was actually talking about upfront costs in terms of time, not in terms of capital expenditures. In terms of actually running the network, I don't have great answers for you. Today, we just set up our cost allocation manager, which will be able to tell us on a day-by-day, uh, week-by-week, uh, month-by-month basis, and we should start getting that reporting this week, uh, trying to figure out exactly what section of our, our AWS bill is coming from this we'll be able to have fine grain information. But I I can tell you there's multiple pieces of infrastructure. It's not just the validator node itself that is running. We need to run something called a network load balancer, which is a gateway for the incoming information from the Ethereum network that then routes information to the server. We also have monitoring set up in our Grafana dashboards And we run that with a a CDN. And then the CDN also has a security node behind it to make sure that evil users can't access it like that. And so each piece of those is sort of like an extra piece of infrastructure outside of the raw server. The server itself, just running it, we know costs about $200 a month thereabouts, but there's network charges uh, in and out. And so that's what we're waiting to learn how much that is, because that can be a lot of data or a little data, depending on how the network is running. So it'll be interesting to see how that's actually playing out. When you first put the stake down for Zelda back, uh, I don't know, December time, it was probably worth, I don't know, $10,000 or so. Uh, We're going to talk about this a little more uh, in a moment, but one stake on ETH2 is currently worth $128,000. How do you feel about being responsible for guarding such an amount? Uh, I feel, you know, pretty confident in the way we transferred our our keys. We keep our keys in an offline wallet and we've set up a process to secure those. The ones that need to be added to the, the hot wallet we have secured in a special part of Amazon that we have delegated access to very carefully. 
I have a question for you, Ben. Just looking at the validator, you know, we're averaging, it looks to be about 8% APR. When the transition happens at the end of the year, do we expect rewards to go up? Is that something that's going to happen or is it going to be, you know, 8% forever kind of thing or will it fall? We discussed this a little bit last time. So the validator rewards decline as more validators join. So it's going down 8%. It's like 7.8% now. It'll, it'll keep going down. But what happens when we do this merge to proof of stake is that the validators become the new miners and receive transaction fees from the network. Now, it's kind of hard to guess what they'll be because we've got this EIP 1559 thing going on, which changes transaction fees. But there's an estimate that at least initially rewards per validator might go up to something around 25% per annum, at least before everybody piles on to, to gain that. So you're right, your instinct is correct that rewards should go up. When it comes to recouping costs, I mean, it took no time at all for us to recoup costs at 8% APR with the price of ETH shooting up when it goes to 25%. Who knows you know, at what price ETH will be sold at then? Coindesk is in a very good state to continue our validator operations and have quite a sum at the end of this project to give away to charity. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, Spencer, and giving us this update. That is Coindesk Director of Engineering, Spencer Beggs. We're going to be moving on now to talk about some of the biggest news headlines that caught our attention, the attention of ETH traders, investors, and hodlers this past week. So please stay tuned, stick around. We're going to be coming back with those news headlines just after this. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. All right, and we're back. So here, talking about some of the biggest markets, news, headlines of the week related to Ether. During our previous episode, I shared that ETH had broken past $3,000. Well, fast forward seven days later, and ETH is well past 4K. At the time of this recording, ETH is at $4,162. This price activity has fueled increased activity on a variety of other fronts. We've got the spot market exchanges. ETH spot volumes overtook Bitcoin spot volumes over the past weekend. And then when we're looking at on-chain activity, on-chain trading activity, we saw the number of unique active Ether accounts, meaning accounts that have either received or sent ETH in the last 24 hours, reach an all-time high of almost $8 million on Sunday. So it's not just price, but it's also the markets that are being affected, 
activity on the Ethereum blockchain that's reaching all-time highs again. And to top it all off, Van Eck, an ETF and mutual fund management company, recently filed for an Ether-based exchange-traded fund, which would allow retail and institutional traders in the U.S. to gain exposure on ETH without having to directly invest in the cryptocurrency. So this proposal is under review right now by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. And along with their Ether ETF proposal, they've also got a Bitcoin ETF proposal in the works. If either of them get approved, that would be the first ever crypto ETF to be approved in the U.S. Canada is miles ahead. They've already got a bunch of Bitcoin and Ether ETFs approved. But again, these proposals, the one that Vanek recently shared about its Ether exchange traded fund, if approved, it would be a huge milestone for the crypto industry. So it's exciting to see this kind of proposal go through. Ben, on this roundup of market news, any thoughts, any comments? I honestly don't know which I prefer, bull market or, or bear market for getting stuff done. There are so many distractions when the market's like this. And, you know, I'm not convinced things are entirely rationally priced. I mean, Dogecoin has been going ballistic and there are a few other oddities around, but there is definitely some rationality in the market because ETH is outperforming compared with some of its here coins, as it were, and seems to be outshining Bitcoin a bit at the moment. So that is nice to see from my point of view. Others may vary <laughs> on that. Uh, something I wanted to highlight, I mean, I mentioned it to Spencer, this one stake on ETH2 is now $128,000, which is a huge amount. And when we started this beacon chain, it was, say, 10,000, which felt like a lot at the time, uh, it has to be said. And there's a question about sort of what to do. Should we reduce the stake? Should we ask people for like four ETH or eight ETH in order to stake? What alternatives are there? Um, Spencer was talking about not having uh, enough ETH to put down a stake, and I'm sympathetic to that. I think the right answer is protocols like uh, Rocket Pool that are coming along, and hopefully we'll be able to cover that soon. I, they should be launching in the next couple of months which will allow stakers in a sort of trustless, decentralized way to put down less than 32 ETH. So I think you can stake from 0.1 ETH or something like that and up. And that's going to be a very nice way to stake a small amount. Do you think that there's a risk of centralization towards decentralized staking pools or even centralized staking pools that allow folks to, um, to participate and earn rewards with less than 32 ETH? One of the pushes right now by Ethereum 2.0 developers is for individuals and also staking pools to diversify the clients that they're running. So don't just run the majority Prism software client, but try running all of these other minority clients to increase the health of the network. In the future, can you see ETH price rising even farther, 32 ETH becoming that much more expensive? And then the narrative kind of shift away from client diversity to we need to find a way for more people to run independently their own nodes so that it's not miners, but so that staking pools don't have too much control over the Ethereum network. Yeah, staking pools come in in a variety of types. And so you've got your fully custodial, like your Coinbase's and your Kraken's basically are exchanges that are staking on your behalf and you can push a button and stake a very small amount of ETH if you like. That worries me. And that is logical centralization. So one entity has the power and can dictate how that stake behaves. And, and if they accumulate enough, they can potentially do unpleasant things to the network. 
hopefully being motivated by having so much stake, they wouldn't, but it's still a risk. However, coming on stream soon are some very credible decentralized staking pool protocols. I mentioned Rocket Pool, others uh, will be springing up as well. And they are a much safer, in my view, uh, way to pool stake. They go to great lengths to minimize the amount of authority or influence over the network any part of the system has. And so in that way are truly decentralized and logically decentralized, which is very cool. The great news about Rocket Pool is that they are enabling in their software all four clients. So by default, it will choose randomly between the four clients unless you override that and choose one that you think is favorite. So that should hopefully help redress some of the balance on the network between the different ETH2 uh, staking clients. Gotcha. So these decentralized staking pools like Rocket Pool, even if they wanted to have a say in what happens to the network, you know, exercise more control over it, centralized control, because of the way that their services are set up, they don't own that stake. They don't control any of that wealth or, or activity. It's really the users that are driving validation, driving staking and participating in their own way, I suppose, without having the minimum threshold amount of 32E. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's a necessary development to protect against increasing centralization on exchanges and custodial providers. It'll be interesting to see how the competition between those two types of staking pools play out. Totally. And I think how different staking is from mining. We're in new territory. We're sort of working out what are the incentives and the different pressures and, and what the landscape will look like in terms of who controls the network and if we can maintain that in a secure, decentralized way. Yeah. And speaking of tweaks that you have to make to the network, I understand that Ethereum 2.0, the beacon chain, uh, Ethereum's parallel proof of stake network that's ongoing. The reason why I have to say so many different names for Ethereum 2.0 is because the terminology keeps changing. So I want our listeners to understand what I mean when I say Ethereum 2.0. But anyways, I hope all of those explanations clarify that I'm talking about the beacon chain, the active network in which there are validators earning rewards. That is about to undergo its first major system-wide upgrade, the Altair upgrade. What kind of tweaks, what kind of optimizations are we expecting for Altair, Ben? Yeah, I'm sorry about the terminology. <laughs> it's totally fair. One day it will all just be Ethereum. and We can forget about all these uh, crazy names. So Altair is the first hard fork, as it uh, kind of used to be called. I prefer the terminology upgrade. We're just going to make some minor tweaks to the way the beacon chain operates, a bit of kind of lessons learned from the first six months. But it's also a practice run for the big one which is the merge coming towards the end of this year, we hope. So we're just going to fiddle around with a few things. Penalties at the moment are reduced. So if you get slashed on the beacon chain, if your validator misbehaves and you're kicked out of the network, currently you are fined 0.25, a quarter of an ETH. That will be going up, I think, to, to half an ETH. And the eventual value will be one ether for, for misbehavior. And there will be some changes to the inactivity penalty so that when the network isn't finalizing, so it's not functioning well, validators will be penalized a little more strongly, which encourages them to get back with the program and, and get validating again. So th those are some changes to the economics. Uh, we're introducing sync committees. This is preparation for doing a light client protocol. So this is quite big kind of infrastructure thing. Users will not notice any difference for now. 
But in future, when we have shards and we have a large light client infrastructure, they will be able to use these sync committees to very easily find out the state of, of the beacon chain. Yeah, so those are those are the main things and some stuff under the hood. I mean, bottom line is it's not very exciting for normal users. <laughs> I think it so. is very exciting. One question about the light client functionality. So as I understand, the reason why clients are heavy, the opposite of light, is because they need to keep track of the entire transaction history of the blockchain. They have to keep track of all the accounts, the millions. I, I said active accounts on Ethereum reached 8 million this past mm. week. They have to keep track of the balances and the history of all those accounts. And so hence, you know, the amount of space and data that's required for a full node, a node to be run on Ethereum is large. It's a cost on your hardware, on your machine. Is the definition of a light client and the ability of Ethereum 2.0 light client, is it that it won't require the need to keep and maintain the history of the blockchain? How does a light client work in comparison to what I just described, which is what all nodes on Ethereum does? Yeah, somebody somewhere has got to maintain the, the state and the history. But what running a light client enables you to do is to access that state without running a full node. So currently, you have to basically run a node yourself if you want to host an Ethereum application, or you delegate it to Infura, something like that, which is, we've discussed this before, it's you know less than the gold standard to delegate it to, to somebody else. So what a light client enables you to do is access a state along with a proof that the state that you've accessed is correct, which is a very small amount of data. So you can request the balance of an account. You can consult a number of nodes to get the state root at that point. And then the balance of the account comes from one of the nodes with a proof that it matches that state root. And that, that can't be faked. So now you have a way to just get the little bits and pieces of information that, that you need. So when you consult your DeFi balance, then potentially inside your browser could be a light client. You don't need to rely on a third party to get that data. You're getting it directly from the network and you can get your DeFi balances or whatever in a very trustless and lightweight way. Gotcha. And presumably after the Altera upgrade, we'd be able to use light clients for the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain transaction history. But once the merge happens, individuals on Ethereum right now, as you say, who are just you know wanting to check their balances on decentralized finance application, they would be able to run an Ethereum 2.0 light client and be able to very quickly within their own browser see what's going on on the Ethereum blockchain instead of having to rely on a centralized third party. We're going to get into more serious work when it comes to Ethereum 2.0 and its final stage of development. We are putting on the big boy pants. <laughs> so timetable <laughs> yes. for the Altair, we discussed it on the last devs call. So we're going to have a spec freeze on the 21st of May. So there are a couple of little wrinkles that need sorting out, but we're, we're almost there. Then we're going to run joint test nets between the clients during early June, because we, though the clients have implemented this protocol, and it is kind of complex because you have to run both the old and new protocols alongside each other and do crazy things like versioning your data structures. Uh, we're going to run some joint test nets uh, during early June, and then look to upgrade the current test nets uh, Prata and Piermont towards the end of June. 
uh, and then target late July or early August to upgrade the, the beacon chain itself. That's going to be fun and games. That's going to be right after the London hard fork on the Ethereum main chain, which we're going to be talking about in more detail mm. in next week's episode with Tim Baiko, the head of Ethereum cat herders. Am I, <laughs> is that right? Is, or the, Ethereum Foundation project yeah, manager? <laughs> yeah, Tim basically chairs the all call devs meeting now. Yeah. So it's more than just chairing the meeting, but he is a sort of coordination point for many things that are going on in Ethereum governance at the moment. Yeah. Used to be my colleague, and I rather miss him, but he's doing uh, great work. So I can't be sad about that. So the 1559 is scheduled for mid July, so around July the 14th. And if we do the Altair upgrade to the Beacon Chain soon after, then that might help stakers because they only have to do sort of one upgrade round. You know, they can upgrade their ETH1 and ETH2 clients at the same time mm. rather than having kind of two separate exercises. And actually, last week, we were talking about the Steklo testnet launch, and you had mentioned that Steklo stands for glass. What does Altair stand for? Uh, we had a competition to name future upgrades that was done by the ETHSTAKER community, if I recall correctly. And we eventually landed on star solar system names, star system names. We've got a whole range starting at A and going through the alphabet. So... Altair is the first one that, that was decided. There was a whole voting process involving POAPs and all, all the usual crazy Ethereum stuff. Decentralized yeah. governance is not easy, folks. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun. <laughs> all right, let's wrap up the show. Thank you all for tuning in to Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. Christine will be back next Thursday with Tim Bako as advertised uh, to discuss EIP 1559 and other topics. If you have any questions you'd like answered, then you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. Also, subscribe to our newsletters. Ben writes an update every other week on Ethereum 2.0 development. You can find it at eth2.news or follow him on Twitter and he'll let you know when the next one is out. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Valid Points by going to coindesk.com. See you next week for Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.